This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, yesterday was Memorial Day. Uh, it's a day where we focus a great deal not only on the men and women who served in the military, not only those who died serving in the military, but the stories behind those battles. And boy, oh boy, one of the great chroniclers of those battles has been James Fenelon. His uh, new book, Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood, has gotten rave reviews across the board, and he himself is actually a paratrooper turned historian. I can't think of a better person to talk to the, the evening of or the day after Memorial Day. James, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I appreciate it. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate the invitation. James, uh, so give us, before we get into your book, tell us a little bit about your history. How does one go from being a paratrooper, how long did you serve and, and where did you serve, to being uh, doing the work of a historian? I would think it's a very different skill set. <laughs> it's a great point. I've never thought about the transition in, in terms of skill set. But yeah, I uh, I went to jump school in 1988. So um, I think we can officially call that, you know, quote unquote, back in the day. I uh, enlisted right out of high school and served for a little over a decade. Some of that time included reserve service while I was going to the University of Texas. Uh, But it was during my time in the service that I developed a real healthy interest in our nation's history, specifically Looking back at uh, World War II, and that's you know that's obviously where uh, you know parachute operations and, and airborne troops kind of got their start, and I just kind of dove into it, and I found stories that I felt needed to be told, and so started started writing those first with with articles, and then later getting into uh, the publication of books. It, so your latest book is Angels Against the Sun, you tell the story of the 11th Airborne, nicknamed the Angels. Who were these guys? Who was the 11th Airborne? Yeah, I think starting with their nickname, the Angels, is a great place to begin. The average age of the 11th Airborne Division troopers was, in 1943, was 19 years old, right? And so if if you think about that, from just, you know, yourself being 19, me being 19, you know, these guys were uh, drafted into the Army in 1943. Some of them certainly did enlist. 
Um, but they were all away from home, all uh, looking to explore what it meant to be a young man getting ready to head off to war. And so when they were on weekend passes and, um, it, you know, they make some questionable decisions and kind of havoc, if you would, followed, followed in their wake. And it was um, on a Monday morning when one of the one of the unit's commanding officers asked how many of our angels are still in jail this morning. And that's kind of that that habit of his asking that question kind of grew. And that's what eventually led to the nickname of, of the division being the angels. All right. Uh, so what you chronicle a bit about their time in the in the Philippines here. Refresh our recollection, because we just did a segment about how uh, Americans civic knowledge is not the best. What was the strategic significance of the Philippines as it related to the Japanese, the Pacific theater in World War Two? Sure. You know, just to, to, to remind everybody with the refresher, the Japanese seized the Philippines in 1942. Of course, they attacked Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Simultaneous to that, they were attacking other U.S. outposts in the Pacific to include the Philippines, which they eventually invaded and then fully occupied in 1942. It was at that time when MacArthur was being evacuated from the island of Corregidor there in Manila Bay that he issued his famous declaration, I shall return. And so part of the strategic value of the Philippines was, you know, once the United States liberated the Philippines and established airfields there and naval bases took advantage of the of the ports there in, in Manila Bay, of course, it gave them the opportunity to cut off Japanese supplies that were being taken from other parts of the area to Japan to feed their war machine. And it was also somewhat of a moral obligation that MacArthur felt the, the need to go back to um, and liberate the Philippines. The Japanese had occupied, the Japanese army had occupied the Philippines, and um, the people were suffering under horrific conditions. And so it was kind of a, a multifold aspect, if you will, as to why the Philippines became an important component of the U.S. strategy. All right. And now why, obviously, as a paratrooper yourself, I'm sure that you have a soft spot for history involving paratroopers. But why pick this specific group? Why the 11th Airborne? Of all the of all the groups that you could choose to focus on throughout American history, why these guys? Why the Angels? Yeah, to, to your point, I think it was, you know, the, the Army, first of all, if we, if we, take, if we step back and we take like a 30,000-foot view, you know, the, the Pacific Theater in World War II is generally known by um, the actions of the Marine Corps, which certainly were heroic and, and worthy of, of note. But there were uh, 21 other divisions, Army divisions, in the Pacific that were fighting. Those were Army units. And just one of those was an Airborne Division, and that's the 11th Airborne Division. So, you know, I kind of like the idea of teasing out that that needle in the haystack mm. to find some amazing stories um, that were related to how these guys fought the war. All right. You cover the formation of the division back in 1943. Any significance, any drama that makes the formation of this particular division at all unusual? Um, you know, the thing that made them unusual, I guess, if you if you compare them to the wider army, was that the 11th was, along with some of the other airborne divisions, that certainly maybe you and your listeners are familiar with, 
the Band of Brothers, right? That was mm-hmm. the 101st Airborne Division. They were kind of in the same boat in that airborne units were smaller than regular infantry divisions. So the 11th Airborne was 8,500 men compared to a regular infantry division, which was closer to 15,000 men. And that, of course, allowed them uh, to have more men up front on the front line, more firepower, and certainly a better logistics capability, which the airborne units did not have. So tell me, what uh, what did these guys do that was so great? Uh, <laughs> I love that kind of direct question. Um, you know, the, the 11th really, and one of the things that I admire about them and, and why I wanted to write the book was they really punched above their weight, right? So it goes back to this notion of there was only 8,500 of them. They came out hmm. of the Philippine campaign bragging of a kill ratio of 45 to 1. They had crossed up into terrain part of – Part of the Leyte campaign was all jungle fighting. They followed that shortly thereafter by going into the capital city of Manila, which was, um, you know, had a population of almost a million people. So now they're next. They were engaged in some heavy urban combat, block by block, brick by brick in many cases. And then they were also then next air landed. They were the first airborne. Uh, they were the first troops to land in Japan as part of the occupation. So they really had quite a range of experiences during the war. Tell me about some of the more colorful characters that were part of this division back in 1943. Yeah, I think one of my, uh, what I found to be one of the most interesting guys was a guy by the name of Mills Lowe. He was one of these kids that had grown up in the Depression on a peanut farm, um, no indoor plumbing. He was the guy that, you know, you kind of hear about when he joined the Army, he viewed army life as a vacation because he got to sleep in late three square meals right so he really took to his army service was promoted through the ranks became a platoon sergeant of a machine gun platoon and um, really led his men with a devotion to duty there was at one point um, during the Luzon campaign that he and his men were set up kind of overwatching a road that they suspected the Japanese might attack down and certainly and, that, and that's exactly what happened so there was you know the, the japanese launched waves of bonsai attacks and it was on the third bonsai attack that mills low realized he and his men were running out of ammunition and so he grabbed a couple of his guys led them um, through their lines into the japanese lines to uh, basically for lack of a better word steal several japanese machine guns they grabbed as many Japanese machine guns, ammunition as possible, hauled that stuff back to their own lines, set them up, and then continued to repel the Japanese attacks using the captured weapons. And that was just one example of his leadership throughout the war. For that action, he was uh, awarded a battlefield commission and then later was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions. Wow. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, James Fenelon, paratrooper turned historian. He is uh, the author of uh, a terrific book. I haven't read it yet in all candor, in all candor but uh, I, it is on my list. It's called Angels Against the Sun, and it gives uh, the perspective. A lot of research went into this book. It gives a perspective of a soldier's perspective, really, on the liberation of the Philippines in the Pacific theater, which was just uh, just so important. So you talk to me about your sources for this book. I would guess that there are very few, if any, 
of these angels uh, still living. That being said, where did you get such terrific source material from for this book? Yeah, it is a sad reality that we're losing our World War II veterans on a daily basis. I was fortunate to interview a handful of those veterans and, and get their stories documented. I also spent a lot of time in the National Archives sifting through old after-action reports, uh, finding letters, diaries. And then I was fortunate enough to have uh, outstanding support from veterans' families who loaned me copies of letters, personal manuscripts that really allowed me to kind of bring the human element into the story, which I think is an important component uh, for any history, right, to really bring it alive for the reader, to engage the reader so that they understand that these were normal people in, you know, extraordinary circumstances. It sounds like you were already pretty familiar with the history before you started researching and writing the book. That being said, was there anything that you learned about the story of uh, these particular men that surprised you that you didn't expect? Yeah, one of the things that I I was surprised by was, you know, I, I was kind of looking at things uh, through the through the eyes of uh, somebody in 2023 that had made some assumptions about that these veterans probably would have preferred to have fought in Europe versus going to the Pacific, right? Just recognizing the brutality for what it was, the conditions of the islands and the heat and the terrain and the jungle. And I was surprised when talking to some of these veterans or reading some of their their letters home. That, you know, and I had just forgotten or taken it for granted that these guys had enlisted specifically in response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. So being sent to the Pacific to fight the Japanese was in many ways exactly what these guys had enlisted for. And that was just something that, you know, it's one of those things that you think about it in those terms. It's pretty obvious. But I had kind of been looking at it with my own, you know, rose colored glasses. Yeah, no, no, it makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. I I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Could you relate, uh, given your own history as a paratrooper, to what some of these folks were going through, either in terms of training or combat itself, in a manner that those of us that have never been in a parachute might not be able to? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that struck with me during my service was I remember sitting there with, you know, another soldier that, you know, my platoon sergeant, and we we ha- I can't remember the circumstance, but we were looking at a photo of the guys um, getting ready to jump into Normandy back from 1944. And we're looking at this photo and he made this offhanded comment to me. And he said, you know, the names change, but the faces stay the same. Hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of sentiment is really what I want to capture in, in my books. I want to bring these guys alive for people so that they're relatable. And I think that's kind of what I carried with me was that responsibility and that knowledge that, you know, these were, these were kids doing the best they can, and they refused to let their circumstances define them. And I think that that's a trait and a value that we could all benefit from. Obviously, you mentioned the word relatable, which I think is so important, uh, particularly for a book that is a subject that a lot of folks would want to learn about. Are people going to have to be experts in World War II already before picking up your book? to be able to relate to it, or does it serve people that uh, don't know a lot about World War II as well as the experts? Yeah, I definitely wrote it to be approachable history, so you don't have to know a lot about um, World War II. 
I made it to where it is largely focused on the human experience of war. So I don't spend a lot of time talking about strategy and tactics. I spend a lot of time talking about what it was like to be a soldier. Certainly, there's some additional context so that readers understand why this soldier is, you know, finds himself in the Philippines, why they're invading, you know, what's going on in the city of Manila at the time. But by and large, you know, in my mind, to make things approachable, I want to keep things as much as possible on the on the human element. Let's talk about a couple of the humans. Tell me who commanded the uh, the eleventh, uh, the angels. The 11th Airborne was commanded by? A uh, commander by the name of General Joseph Swing. Interesting character, interesting guy. He graduated from West Point in 1915. He was classmates with Dwight Eisenhower, who, of course, was the supreme commander in the European theater and later president of the United States. But when Swing graduated from uh, West Point, his first assignment was as a lieutenant in Black Jack Pershing's expedition into Mexico. Hmm. And here's where we really see his early exposure to uh, the Army's experimentation with mechanization and technology, such as using biplanes for scouting missions, uh, armored vehicles for the first time. We really see him develop a comfort with um, going into situations without a rule book, right? Because this is the first time the Army was using a lot of these technologies. There was no doctrine, and these guys were kind of making it up as they as they went along. And that's something that characterized Swing's approach to hmm. fighting in the Philippines. And he was a so he was a World War One veteran before playing such a pivotal role here in World War Two. That's right. That's, that's right. He that's... was an artillery officer in World War One and definitely uh, fought in the trenches of in France. Uh, who's Thomas Messero? Thomas Messero is another fascinating. He, he, first of all, he was literally a larger than life character. He was six foot four, played football for West Point. And he has an interesting history with the 11th Airborne in that he was engaged in their first firefight on Leyte Island. His uh, unit, Company C of the 511th Parachute Infantry, was engaged in the first combat with Japanese troops. And then he was also present um, on the deck of the USS Missouri during the signing of the of the surrender docu- documents with the with the Japanese envoy. So he kind of represents an interesting bookend to the unit's World War II history. One of the things we've heard a great deal about, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with James Fenelon. If you're interested in this book or any of his other books or catching up on some of his articles about a wide variety of subjects, including military history, you can check out his website, jamesfenelon.com. That's F-E-N-E. L-O-N.com. One of the things we hear a great deal about now, in part because of the times we live, is the issue of race and integration, uh, which was not exactly uh, too commonplace in the American military in the 30s and the 40s. What was the situation in terms of mixed race servicemen serving in the 11th Airborne? Yeah, to your point, the the Army in World War II was segregated, so there were no, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of, um, uh, I guess, it, you know, there was there was a, a, an all-black parachute unit, but those guys did not serve with the 11th. Interestingly enough, though, there were some Japanese Americans that were in the 11th Airborne Division. Huh. So these were guys that had volunteered to serve out of some of those internment camps. They were kind of known as double volunteers because they volunteered to serve first and foremost in the Army, and then they volunteered again to go into parachute training. 
And these guys, um, you know, provided a pivotal skill set in the 11th Airborne in that they could translate uh, Japanese and that they could also eavesdrop. There was a couple of times where they were able to tap into Japanese communication lines, and these guys were able to obviously listen in and translate what they were hearing from an intelligence standpoint. Wow. It's uh, quite a story. Again, uh, the book is called Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. It's author James Fenlon. James, thanks so much for joining me. appreciate it. And thanks for your service to the country as well. You bet. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 